you turn this morning to Mark's Gospel, chapter 1. Last Lord's Day, we begin our series on the Gospel of Mark by noting the central theme. Hopefully you have not forgotten that over the course of the week. As we think about uh, the one who has come, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Mark now begins to disclose to us that theme by going back to the beginning, starting with the ministry of Jesus Christ. Just to note, uh, you may want to, I noted this to one of the Bible study groups this week, but you may want to contact Channel 13 or TV8 or Fox News. Um, I have pretty earth-breaking news. It wasn't the Russians. And I know who it was. I know who it was. Guido de Bray and the Belgic Confession and God's Word reveal it to us. We know who it is. And we know who it always is. So I invite you back tonight. Mark chapter 1. In the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locust and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. That's far the reading of God's word. Let's again bow in prayer. Our gracious Father, we again come to the portion of your worship where we hear the word proclaimed. Father, we just pray that your spirit will work mightily in our hearts. Father, as we see the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, King of kings and Lord of lords, and Father, your word reveals that this king will return again in glory, and Father, that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Father, we just pray that for those this morning who may not know Christ as their Lord and Savior, Father, that today would be their very day of salvation. Father, that you would open their eyes and hearts to the word of, of Lord Jesus Christ and they might grasp with heart and soul and mind onto the Lord Jesus Christ for their comfort and their strength. All this we pray in his name. Amen. Amen. Other than Jesus, you can't give him as the answer. Other than him, what person would you have liked to have heard 
preach. Some, perhaps, undoubtedly, if you're a follower of the Puritans, might suggest, well, I, I really would have liked to have been sitting in the congregation that day to hear Jonathan Edwards, sinners in the hands of an angry God. However, my guess is that most of us probably would not have seen or heard or understood the significance of that sermon that leads to and begins part of the Great Awakening in the United States on that day. Others of you perhaps would have chosen George Whitefield, who is thought to have and spoken to crowds of some 20,000 without all these amplifications and so on. One must certainly have been impressed by his voice. Charles Spurgeon perhaps comes to mind as perhaps someone you would have liked to have heard preach. Um, Martin Lloyd-Jones might be another one that comes to mind. Or perhaps you, you go back further in time and think of uh, perhaps John Knox preaching fiery sermons from the pulpit there in Scotland. Or perhaps Calvin or Luther. Or perhaps even John Huss. Maybe you go back further in time and think about uh, St. Augustine as perhaps someone you, you might like to have heard or maybe even Francis of, a, of Assisa. Or perhaps you'd go back to the biblical times and think, huh, to have heard Peter on that day of Pentecost or to hear the Apostle Paul on Mars Hill. Perhaps some might think of Elijah or Elisha, Jeremiah or Isaiah. But probably there are a fair number of folks as to, after we think this through a little bit might have answered John the Baptist. And so this morning that's who is before us. This man who is indeed one of the great preachers as far as human beings are concerned, that the Lord ever gave that word to. As Mark begins his account of the gospel, I want you to note that there is no birth account. There is no mention of Bethlehem, of angels. There is no mention even of Mary and Joseph, not even in terms of an ancestry. Part of the reason for that is that the first intended audience of Mark's gospel are, are Romans. And they're not really into all of that. Proving the background of Jesus as far as uh, his Jewishness would have not been of all that great importance. Nor would the story of his birth have carried much emphasis. After all, Mark is after a theme to show forth the servanthood of the one who is Savior and Sovereign, Jesus Christ. So there's no birth account. We just jump in. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is where he begins. We, we fast forward into the life of Jesus until he's probably somewhere in his latter 20s, perhaps 30 is a generally given area of time when his ministry begins. Here we are. And it's the gospel 
the good news that Mark wishes to show. And so we begin by noting, first of all, three names will be our first point. Secondly, three messengers that are mentioned. And then thirdly, the single or solitary message that is brought. First of all, Mark introduces us to Jesus by giving us three names. Jesus, Christ, the Son of God. Jesus is his personal name. It's the name that the angel told Joseph to give Jesus at his birth. You shall call him Jesus. That's what he was going to be known as. That's what Mary and Joseph would call him. That's what all those people until he's 30 years old call him. That's what he is referenced to most often by the disciples and by his followers. Jesus. It's his personal name. But we can never use that personal name without thinking of the meaning that the angel confirmed upon it. He will save his people from their sins. And I know many of you know this, but it bears repeating. Jesus is but simply the, the New Testament way of saying the name of Joshua. So it's a popular name. He's not the only little child running around Bethlehem with the name of Jesus. Certainly not the only one in Jerusalem and certainly not the only one in all of Judea. It's a popular name. Joshua was a hero. Of course you're going to call your children after popular heroes of the day, especially those religious ones that have led the charge and given the people of Israel the land of Canaan, that glorious good hope that they have. However, it's probably better to, to use the pronunciation that, that we would actually have, and that would be Jeshua. So don't be confused. Sometimes today you'll hear people speak about Yeshua, Joshua, or Jesus. In essence, all three names are the same. And so you have to ask them, to whom are you referencing? Which Jesus? Which Joshua? Which Yeshua? Secondly, we are given the name Christ. He is Jesus Christ. This is the gospel, not of Jesus... This is the gospel of Jesus Christ, an official title. In the Greek, it's the translation of what we learn in the Old Testament as the Messiah, the anointed one, the chosen one. This is the one who is picked to lead the people. Thirdly, John, or Mark gives us the name Son of God, the divinity of Jesus. And, and as you think about that, you think hey, that's an interesting way of opening this up, isn't it? Because last week, in, in that setting it up as, as the, as the uh, theme of the whole book, it's the Son of Man, the Son of Man. And we saw what that glorious title means. But Mark, as he begins the gospel, introduces Jesus Christ, as the Son of God. Now think what that means for a Roman. Understand a background of lots of mythology. Understand the background of years and years and years of Greek mythology and of their own Roman mythology. 
And, and what comes out of that? It's always being what? The son of the gods. The son of the gods. He's one of the sons of the gods. Notice how Mark introduces Jesus Christ. The one who is the anointed one. The one who is the savior. Is the one who is the son of God. Singular. He is holding Jesus up as the one and only. In other words, you folks have belief about all sorts of sons of God. Let me tell you and introduce to you the good news. The good news is this. There is but one son of God. And his name is Jesus. And his title is Christ. not just a man. He is divine. The divine Son of God who comes to give his life as a ransom for many. The divine Son of God who comes not to be served but to serve. Oh, how completely opposite this is of all their mythology that they have grown so accustomed to. Here comes the good news. There is the Son of God who comes to serve and not to be served. Secondly, we are introduced to three messengers. Verse 2. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. First of all, a clarification. Verse 2, which includes the quote, Behold, I send my messenger, is not from Isaiah. That actually comes to us from the book of Malachi. It's Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Now, before we get all, oh no, he talked about Isaiah and it's Malachi. This is very common. It's a very common way, not only for Jewish people to speak, it's a very common way that even the gospel writers speak. In other words, they're going to quote Isaiah, but they're going to set the quote up. There's going to be a preface to the quote. So that when we get to the quote about Isaiah in verse 3, we have the background and the reference that helps us understand the quote when we get there. So unlike liberal professors that want to throw the entire scriptures away because of this, rather than taking note of the pattern of the way in which people speak and use the scriptures of that day and learn something from the history of it, they instead want to discredit it. But for us, this not only adds to the richness, but it adds to the beauty. Because you see, what we have here is the voice coming to us from the last of the prophets, Malachi. And the message of that prophet is a messenger is coming. 
and the messenger comes before the Messiah appears. There will be a messenger that comes to prepare the way for the coming of the Lord. Now, verse 3, we get to the prophecy of Isaiah. There is a voice of one crying in the wilderness. See, there's a little more detail. We were told a messenger is coming. Isaiah tells us that the one who is coming, the one who is going to be this messenger, is going to be one who cries in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. If you think about the context of this, go back to Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40 sets for us the context out of which Isaiah is speaking. These are the words that begin, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Isaiah is given a message to come to the people in chapter 40. Basically, for 39 chapters, Isaiah has been telling them of their sin of judgment, and now he has the joy of announcing the good news, the gospel. The good news is this. One is coming, but his way needs to be prepared. Make ready. One can think of the fact that when the people of Israel are released from their captivity in Babylon and begin their journey. They are journeying through the wilderness. And as they journey through the wilderness, here come those words of Isaiah again, prepare the way of the Lord. What are we to do? What is to be done? Verse 4, every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. The mouth of the Lord has spoken. It's one of those passages that Handel took and included within uh, the Messiah oratorio. And you hear that, that glorious chorus in the background, singing as angels of heaven itself are singing. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And the glory and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. Prepare for the coming of the Lord. Those two passages, the one from Malachi and the one from Isaiah, now lead us to the third prophet. The fulfillment of this. Who is John? Jesus himself verifies this. Jesus tells us that the passages that we have just read find their fulfillment in John. If we turn to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11, we start at verse 7. As they went their way, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. Did you go out into the wilderness to see a reed shaken by the wind? 
What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet. Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Jesus confirms to us that John, who Mark is introducing us here to at the beginning of the gospel, as the one who is the announcer, the one who is the herald, as every Roman emperor, as every important Roman dignitary would have, someone who goes before them and announces their presence. Citizens of Rome, hear ye, the great Nero. If Nero has his preparer, how much more so Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has the voice who goes out before him. And Jesus tells us in Matthew, that is exactly what John did. That's exactly who John is. He announces my coming. I want you to note three things then about John the prophet. First of all, his appearance. It has been about three to four hundred years since the Old Testament has closed. Since the last prophetic word. Years of silence. No voice of the Lord. No one calling out. There has been silence, silence. Well, that doesn't mean history wasn't occurring. There was lots going on. Some of the most incredible events of human history take place in these three to four hundred years. But the voice of the Lord is silent. Is the Lord working? <laughs> most absolutely. It wasn't the Russians. But is he speaking through the prophetic voice? Not at all. Suddenly, the messenger who you are seeking will come. Suddenly. You have to understand that, that as Mark introduces us here to John, that this comes with a suddenness. Nothing like this had been happening. Nothing like this had been going on. There had been no prophet of the Lord. And they certainly recognized him as a prophet. Jesus even confirmed that in that Matthew passage. Secondly, when he appears, he appears very uniquely, doesn't he? It's interesting that Mark gives us nothing of Joseph and Mary and a stable and angels. But he has to tell us about how John was dressed. He has to give us a fashion statement. That we get. And we might well ask the question, what difference does it make? What difference does it make what John was wearing? What difference does it make what clothing John had, had on? 
Well, that would lead us to the question, right? We have to ask that. Why does Mark tell us about this? Verse 6, John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. I understand some of you children, I think your lessons are beginning here with John. And some of you uh, perhaps think when you, when you see this picture for a little child, I know there is at least one who thinks he kind of looks like a farmer with bib overalls on with this you know, coat of camel's hair and so on. And you kind of get, get the picture, don't you? Okay? John tells us this for a reason. Why? Because we learn in 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 8, this is the very same attire as Elijah the prophet. John is dressed the way he is for a reason, for a purpose. He's not being anti-clothing properly. He's not being somehow, you know, anti-cloth. He, he's not doing this to make a statement about fashion. He is doing this and dressed purposely this way so that he is seen as Elijah, which is exactly what we find in Mark chapter 9, verses 9 through 13. We learn again the fact that Jesus says, a one greater than Elijah has come, referencing John. So this, this correspondence between Elijah and John is on purpose. Elijah announced the coming of the Lord in judgment upon his people. So too, John, like Elijah of old, is announcing the judgment of God upon sin. And so a place in their hearts needs to be prepared for the Lord. Second thing I want you to note about John the prophet is his workplace. We are told that he is go they were going out. Okay, to see John, verse 4, in the wilderness. Some of your versions may use the word desert. I believe the Hebrew is jesaman. It means the devastation. For any Jew, when you reference the desert, when you reference wilderness, a Jew thinks automatically of their history. And they think of that 40 years of wandering in the wilderness under the judgment of God. There in the wilderness, God's judgment rested upon them. There in the wilderness, John brings his message of judgment, his message of devastation, of hearts needing to be totally rent. There in the wilderness. See, it's not because he was unpopular. For we read that basically all of Jerusalem and all of Judea, meaning all types of people, all sorts of people. And next week we'll look further into that in the baptism of Jesus. But all sorts of people are coming. The Sadducees, the Pharisees are coming. Soldiers are coming. All sorts of people are coming to John to hear this message in the wilderness. This place of devastation, this place where 
judgment is dealt with. It is by no accident, you see, that on the Day of Atonement, you take those two goats, the priest confesses the sins of the, goat, of the people upon the heads of the goat. One goat is taken away sacrifice. The other goat is taking, taken by the name of Aziel and taken out into the, where? Wilderness. The place of devastation. The place of judgment. See, we can look at it as the picture of God removing sins, but we can also see the picture of this is where God deals with sins. This is where God confronts sin. In the wilderness, in the desert places of our lives, God comes to open our eyes to sin. John. His appearance, his workplace, his method. We are told here, and we'll just introduce it for this week as well, we are told that John comes baptizing and proclaiming a baptism of repentance. Now, although this was known to the Jews, it was not practiced by the Jews. What do I mean by that? What I mean by that is this. When a Gentile wished to convert to Judaism, a Gentile needed to be baptized because they were thought of as completely unclean and therefore they needed to go through the ritual washings in order to become clean. A Jew would never submit to baptism because they are the sons of Abraham. They don't need it. What is unique is that John comes with a message, no, you Jews need to submit to baptism. It's not just the Gentiles who need this. You as Jews, as sons of Abraham, as the covenant people of God, you too need to be baptized. So be baptized for a repentance of sins. As a sign that you are repenting of that which you have done. We'll deal with this a little bit more next week, as I said, but bear in mind, John says, but there is one greater than I who is coming. Bear in mind that there has been no blood of the Christ of the Passover lamb yet shed. There is no means of forgiveness through the blood of Jesus Christ other than the picture, other than the shadow. The shadow of those sacrifices, the shadow of those, these washings, the shadow of this baptism. This is but a shadow that points to the reality of the coming of Jesus Christ. And even John here is saying, hey, my baptism is secondary. My baptism is unimportant. My baptism will be surpassed. My baptism will have its day. There is one who is greater who will baptize you not with water but with the Holy Spirit. This is the baptism that you are to look for. But there is a single solitary message, is there not? Verse 2, prepare. Verse 3, prepare. The way of the Lord. 
whether it's Malachi, whether it's Isaiah, whether it is John the Baptist, the message is singular. Prepare the way of the Lord. The word that's used here for prepare is kind of a unique word. It, it involves some thought, it involves preparation, it involves skill. It is the idea to make something ready using a vessel, a tool, or an implement. Now, we in West Michigan ought to know a lot about this, right? Right? Because we certainly hope that the men who are making level the roadways, who are making straight that which is crooked, or shall we say, full of holes, are at least planning what they're doing. Sometimes we wonder, don't we? But that's what we would think is the goal. You ought to plan out this road construction project. You ought to know what you're doing. You ought to figure it out. There are guys out there with all those sticks, right, Mr. Mulder? Okay, finding out the exact heights and locations, where exactly this new runway or new uh, exit is going to be, how we're going to change it, how it's going to be safer, how deep the roadbed had to be. There, there is not only the planning of it, but there is the skill. You put me on, you know, pardon me, but I don't want to be too political, but stop to think about this. Did we really want the National Guard out there on the road construction projects? How do you start this thing? I don't know. The governor told me to get on this thing and move. So, okay. How deep, how do you move this blade? I don't know. Oh, I think that's too big a hole. Now, of course, there are men in the National Guard who have skills and abilities and so on. But we would hope they would use the skills and abilities. Those of us do-it-yourselfers know full well what happens when we rent something from, you know, true value rental and we tell the guy, yeah, I know how to work it. Yeah, I know how to work it because we don't want to appear dumb. Okay? And then we get at home and go, I can't even get the thing started. What am I supposed to do? I can't remember. So then we have to call and say, I can't get it started. What did I do? And the guy says, did you turn the little red switch? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's one of the things I forgot. To prepare means to plan. It means to use skill, to use ability, to use knowledge, and to carefully do the work. See, you probably never thought about all of that when it says prepare the way of the Lord. But if you put it in the context of Isaiah, who's saying... You know, the way, the road, the highway needs to be made ready. It comes back and makes a little more sense. To prepare the way of the Lord is not just haphazard. John is doing this in a planned, thoughtful way. He knows what he's doing. His message is purposeful. There is skill involved in that which he is doing. There is a wealth of knowledge that he is using to apply. 
to that which is taking place. This is Malachi, this is Isaiah, this is John. He is preparing the way of the Lord to build skillfully according to design. The way, the road, the path. Jesus says in Matthew 7, verse 13 and 14, there are two roads that one can go on. One can either take the narrow way or one can take the wide way. I know oftentimes in our minds we, we picture the wide way as this super highway. That's all planned out and everything else. Yes, it is. But so is the narrow way. In fact, it takes a lot of skill to build a narrow way. How many of you have not traveled through the mountains going, I can't figure out how they built this thing? What knowledge, what skill to be able to, to build this roadway, this narrow way through these hard and difficult, rugged terrain? Jesus himself will declare in John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. To prepare the way. To prepare the way of the Lord. So that the responsibility of John, of Malachi, of Isaiah, was to build, to construct the road that leads to the Lord. were to take the word of God skillfully with knowledge with precision to use this as the means by which valleys were going to be made low and the crooked was going to be made straight to prepare the way the Lord, the master, the one who has sovereign ownership over all. Not Nero. Not any other emperor. Not any other small g God. But the one Lord. Let me ask you a question. Answer in the affirmative if you so agree. Is Jesus Christ coming again? Yeah, that was kind of half-hearted. Okay? Well, I hope you believe it a little long, harder than what you just said. So let, I'll give you another shot at it. Is Jesus Christ coming again? What needs to be done before he comes again? We need to prepare the way of the Lord. See, this becomes our responsibility as well. This is not just an ancient thing for Mark. This is not just for Malachi. This is not just for Isaiah. This is the work, not just of the church, but of every member of the church. We are to be preparing the way for the coming of the Lord. What a glorious task is ours. That God gives to us the responsibility of using His Word 
as a means by which we go out into this world. We go out into not the deluxe, peaceful acreage. We go to the wilderness. We go where sin is. We go where judgment is. And there when we go, we proclaim God's wrath on sin. And we proclaim the one way of salvation. And we teach the glorious life and freedom of bringing glory to God in all that we do. Prepare the way of the Lord. Last week we spoke about being servants. John says, there's one who's coming, whose thongs or whose sandals I am not worthy to unbind. The one greater is coming again. And as servants, we are called to prepare the way of the Lord. Who will God bring into the wilderness of our lives this week? For us, Bring the good news of Jesus Christ to them. Father, we thank you again for the promises of your word, for the challenges of your word, for the glorious hope of your word. Lord, we look forward with eager expectation. Indeed, we cry out with the Apostle John, Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. And as we long for that day of the appearance of Christ, so we commission the responsibility that we have to be witnesses and to prepare the way. In Christ's name, God's people say, Amen.